And bonjour to everyone and welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses, on Element FM. We are broadcasting from Toronto at 106.5 FM and in Ottawa at 95.7. And of course, anywhere around the globe, if you are downloading the Radio Canada app and typing in our Element FM signature and listening over the, uh, over the airs that way. We are very happy that you are able to join us today, and we are also able, uh, very proud of uh, a guest that we have on the line with us. We actually have two guests from the, the Canadian Museum of History in Gatineau, Quebec, this morning. And uh, our first guest is Dean Oliver, and Dean is the Senior Director of Research and Chief Curator at the museum. Uh, Dean, good morning and welcome to the show. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. And, you know, uh, now the Canadian Museum of History, it it used to be the the Museum of Civilization. Is that correct? Correct. So do you know why the name was changed? The um, name was changed by uh, by the government of Canada several years ago to better reflect uh, the nature and orientation of the work we actually do, which mm. is far more focused on the history of Canada and all of its peoples uh, than perhaps was the name Civilization. Mm. There was also another Museum of Civilization in Canada, which is the one in uh, in Quebec City. Mm. And uh, the name change, I have to say, has allowed us to focus in quite tightly on the uh, histories of Canada in all of its permutations, uh, pre-settler contact, post-settler contact, and a range of things in between. It's been very, very useful for both exhibitry and also for collecting. It, it certainly is a beautiful museum, uh, and I believe designed by an Indigenous uh, architect. Douglas uh, Cardinal, yeah. yeah yes, yes. Um, and, and so, uh, with that, I, I, before we get into things, I'd like to go back a little bit with you, if you don't mind, because you used to work at the Canadian War Museum. I did. I was there for close to 14 years. Yeah. Now, that's, in, I, believe, I believe, in Hamilton, Ontario, is it not? Uh, no, that's the Warplane Heritage Museum. Oh, the Warplane. Okay. Oh. To. No, the, the Canadian War Museum is right across the river here. It's our, our sister institution on the Ottawa side of the Ottawa River. You're absolutely correct, and I thank you for that correction. I was jumping there. Um, and I have been to that museum. That's another great museum um, and with uh, some, some great uh, things in it. Uh, you said it's a sister to your to the history. Yes, both of us, uh, both the Canadian Museum of History and the War Museum, are under the same uh, corporate umbrella. We're mm-hmm. part of the same um, uh, Crown Corporation. Okay. Uh, in addition to which, uh, you'd also perhaps be familiar with the Children's Museum, which yep. is uh, housed here in this building, and also online the uh, Virtual Museum in New France is also one of our one of our um, uh, pro- projects and, and products. So we're all part of the same corporate family under the same chief executive officer. Mm. And I understand you co-authored a book, is that correct? Uh, I've done a few. Uh, The most uh, recent one was uh, seven or eight years ago, a book called uh, The Oxford Companion to Canadian Military History with uh, my old friend and mentor, uh, Jack Granitstein, Mm. which is copies of which are still available, David, if you wish (laughs) some for family and friends. (laughs) That's great. Now, when you put a book like that together, what what are you looking to show? What are you trying to get out there? Well, in that case, we were looking for um, uh, as close as we could come to a uh, a brief but comprehensive uh, overview of all of the various aspects of Canada's military past in all of its periods. Mm. And so uh, we added into it things like images, maps, uh, some appendices that would provide references for others. So it was a little bit of uh, whetting the appetite of curiosity for people who wanted to read a little bit, in particular people who wanted to read about members of their, about the experiences of family members, rather, in uh, in 
wars and, and military excursions, but we also wanted it to be quite scholarly, that it would be um, not only just a, a wetting of the appetite, but uh, something that would be would be reliable, and we're happy to find that um, that people tend to think it is reliable, they use it a lot, it's sold well, um, uh, and so it was a very it was a, a long process of putting it together, but but very 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 um, beneficial I think to both of us. Great, congratulations on that and and the other books Thank that you, you so have much. out there. Now uh, again, before we move on to some of the things at the museum uh, that you wanted to talk about, I want to talk a little bit more about you, you have a PhD from uh, York University, and I do. you 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 you've taught political science and international security. I'm, I'm just wondering. How does that roll into to your role at the museum that, that you, you are now uh, doing? Oh, very good question. Um, I, uh, I, I had, um, uh, I guess I had the effrontery to think that I needed a career plan uh, when I was uh, a young undergraduate. And so I had structured my studies uh, loosely as follows, a bachelor's in the 19th century, a master's in the first war, PhD in the Second War and a postdoc in the Cold War, mm. and uh, so I, my first uh, teaching gigs actually were in international security, so the co- the mm. Cold War end of that uh, continuum. Mm. And then when I came to the War Museum, among my first curatorial duties were things that pertain to things like peacekeeping, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, and NORAD. And so that was all very very useful. And then over here, um, part of my duties, of course, is the more contemporary history of Canada, mm. uh, both hiring people and, and mentoring people in those areas, and uh, just recently, I wound up with a good colleague, uh, Olivier Cote, doing some work on post-1945 Can- Canadian experiences in the world. So humanitarian assistance, aid, education, military activity, and so forth. So uh, as my grandmother would say, uh, education is no burden to carry around. And so that little bit of, uh, po- of post-Cold War security has served me in good stead over the years, I would say. I like that. I like that. That's a good saying. Um so that was that was wise words for from your grandmother there, as as most words from your grandmother are. That's right. That's right. We just have to pay attention. Indeed. <laughs> um, okay. So so moving on to the uh, the Museum of History and uh, what's going on there. One of the things that uh, most recently, I guess, is is fairly big news is the the Margaret Hess donation. Indeed. Yeah, we were very, very, um, very, very happy with this uh, donation. Uh, Margaret, uh, her her nickname known to her friends and family was Marmie, M-A-R-M-I-E. Marmie Hess was was known to us for many, many years. Um, she, when she was a hundred, when she just passed her hundredth birthday, when she uh, when she passed away several years ago. But she had a long relationship with ourselves and with many other uh, universities, galleries, institutions that were focused on not only uh, Canadian history broadly, but Western. Northern and Indigenous histories in particular. And so she had uh, assisted us with book projects and with the purchase of objects, etc. And she had this incredible uh, relationship with many other institutions in the same way. But we were uh, surprised and delighted to find that uh, we were named as a beneficiary of her estate and uh, the portion of the estate for which, um, to which uh, we, we were asked, uh, you know, the interest in acquiring were hundreds of items of, uh, of Inuit art. But her, her life story is is, is absolutely extraordinary. Yeah, no, I've seen some of these pictures and some of the things that you were you were uh, very uh, very fortunate to to receive, and it looks like quite a collection. 
It is uh, hundreds of pieces. Uh, the the bulk of it is uh, is stone and sculpture, mm-hmm. uh, but lots of other things as well. Uh, antler, for example, uh, is included in the in the material. And uh, as as beautiful and incredible as the as the collection is, part part of the um, the beauty of this entire donation is, in fact, in Marmy's life herself, a very unusual story of um, of a woman entrepreneur, um, an educator, an a, 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 like a, a ferociously curious person who, as part of her collecting practice and as part of her interest in indigenous communities, on her own spent time uh, in the far north, uh, really across Canada from uh, from the farthest east to the farthest west, and also uh, beginning in the 1950s up and down the coast of British Columbia. And uh, both alone and in conjunction with friends, developed an entire network of connections and uh, relationships with uh, indigenous families, with producers, with with small, very small artistic communities, mm. uh, and was collecting these things before most other people were. I mean, yeah. you know, the, as you well know, the Dorset uh, prints, for example, mm-hmm. kind of 1950s thing. We bought our first um, uh, sculptures uh, from uh, from Inuit producers in the early 1950s. Well, Marmy was doing this on her own in the early 1950s as well, and that is part of what we have inherited. Not just the commercial stuff that came much later, right. but the things that Marmy was finding in yeah. community through her friends and uh, and her connections 20 years before that. Yeah, and, and I would say it looks like that when you see it. Now, when you receive something like this, as you say, hundreds of pieces, you, you have to go more, through More than it. 700 in total. Oh, yeah, wow. I mean, it, it's, it's a massive uh, uh, undertaking, I'm guessing, just to document it all. And, and, and how do you evaluate something like that, even from a financial point of view? You know, I mean... The answer to the latter is very slowly and very carefully, uh, but the the, the answer to the, form, to the former is easier. Uh, it was a massive collection. Uh, Marmy's um, estate uh, spread over several properties that she owned. She had been the, the only child of, a, of very wealthy, very uh, cultured parents, and so she was able financially through their success and her own subsequent success to acquire not, on, not only the hundreds of items that uh, we got, but, but thousands of items, in fact. Mm. And so the first, uh, of course, call of this absolutely massive collection was done by the estate in conjunction with the good colleagues of ours at the Glenbow Museum in Calgary. And then the um, the intended beneficiaries' materials was kind of divided up into groups, including the several hundred that were to come to us. There was a review initially by Glenbow, and then we sent uh, two people out, including our Indigenous art curator, uh, Linda Grisani, and uh, one of our Indigenous specialists, Kelly Cameron, and they reviewed material and tried to match her exquisitely maintained documents. I mean, these are things of beauty, binders and files and bits of notepaper that she'd been collecting since the 1950s Mm. on all of these things. And then once we looked at them, reviewed them, and decided that, yes, indeed, these would make a perfect fit for our collections, the process began with the estate of negotiating the timing of uh, shipment and so forth. So they were then all shipped here. And now we're in the process, uh, even a year and a half and more later, of of marrying up digitally 
all of the information that we had in those handwritten doc binders and mm. documents and photocopies with the actual items, and then also checking those against our existing records to see things like the uh, spelling of artists' names, mm. uh, do we have these people already in the collections and so forth. And it, just to give you an indication, uh, we have in or around uh, 33 or 3,400 pieces of Inuit sculpture prior to acquiring those from Marmy, which increased our holdings by about 20%. And so that puts us at around 4,000 items. And so now her collection is being integrated both both physically and intellectually in terms of artists, community, etc., with those we already have. Mm. A couple of questions come to mind. The first one I'm just wondering about, when you go through something like this uh, and you're looking through all of these items uh, and the names of artists and you're, you're, you're seeing things, uh, do you very often come across surprises, surprises to you guys? Uh, yes, indeed. Uh, perhaps the greatest of these, I have to say, um, uh, perhaps, it, perhaps it ought not to have surprised us, but there are many things that a collection teaches you. So not just the, uh, you know, the aesthetic and the material in which it was made. Mm. Uh, those things, many of those things become, are, are quite obvious at first sight, and, and even a layman can spot them. Uh, other things are less obvious, like what the, what the materials say about the nature of the ethnocultural community, mm. what it might say about the purposes for which things were made. Uh, what it might have said about the family and community relationships that led to their production. So one of the big, um, ple- very pleasant surprises in this was the percentage and number of uh, beautiful pieces uh, produced by women artists. Mm. And so uh, both men and women are represented in the collection, hundreds mm. of each, uh, but many, clearly many of uh, Marmy's closest and most productive relationships were with uh, indigenous women artists, and those are very, very, very highly represented in the collection. And when we started, um, uh, when Linda had started, you know, plotting where those communities were, some of them really quite small communities of, you know, 50 or 100 people, Mm. um, it's very clear that the collection now, post this accession, uh, our collection rather, reflects far better the geography and topography and diversity of the North than it did before we acquired the Mar- Marmy's collection. And, and both of those things, the, the gender of many of the artists and the ge- geographical location and dispersion of many of them have been just fantastic. Dean, how, how does this help when you receive something like this? How does this help in terms of the, the Inuit art itself and also in terms of raising the profile of Canadian uh, art and indigenous art around the world, or does it? Uh, it oh, it does. Very, oh, very astute question. It, it does very definitely, and and has always done so. Um, you know, I'm the. Uh, very lucky to inherit in this museum uh, the you know not only the collections that people have been acquiring since the late 19th century but also the the intellectual work and the successes and victories of the many people who come before me in this job mm. and so the um, the our this museum's relationship with uh, with indigenous art and indigenous arts is a long one but it was has been very clear for you know bordering on a century now that there's a direct relationship between major institutions acquiring these things uh, paying proper uh, respect not only uh, interpersonally and professionally but also financially to artists and producers that having them in national collections and then using national vehicles like ours as a way to spread them not only around the country and around the world is the way is a way not 
not the only way, but a way to make sure that they are respected, preserved, and shared. And so, uh, you know, we we had uh, indigenous art curators here in the early 1970s. We were acquiring actively from, in particular, northern Canada from the 1950s. And uh, almost all, not not all, but almost all of the major uh, traveling international art exhibitions produced in Canada from the 1960s on were were either ours or strongly supported by us. And and any given day, there's somewhere between probably several score and several hundred of our items on loan to other institutions around the country. And so uh, it it is a a work of long standing that we do, but it is directly related to the success of things like the the Dorset Print Project, of which we have, um, at least until very, very recently, there may be a few in recent years that we're missing, but we have almost all of them. And that too was a medium that was reflected in Marmy's collection. There were about 100 prints, 125, I think David Prince and drawings that came as well, but but thank you for that question. Uh, we you know we we like to think that we've been at the forefront in, of this, and I, I think the history of curation and exhibitory in Canada demonstrates it's true. Now, my next question is: when when you receive all this, this uh, you you already have Indigenous art, and you have in your art uh, on hand. What do you do with this? Do you create its own exhibit at some point? Do you do you keep some of the stuff off the shelves? How do you what do you do with this once once you receive it all? Well, the first uh, part of uh, the first part of, of of doing is maintaining, and so uh, having it having it in the building, having it on the website, making it digitally available, sharing it with anybody who wants it. If you were doing an exhibition tomorrow and came to us and said, "I'd like to borrow some Marmy Hess art," we would happily oblige. But beyond that, what people normally see, aside from the work that is done in in research and dissertations and uh, and community connection, what most people see, of course, from museums are exhibits whether those that we have on site or those that we travel someplace else and of course oftentimes they're both mm. something goes on the road and then it's shown here and so the Hess collection fits into our plans for all of those things we're doing a, a major exhibition project right now called uh, tentatively entitled Indigenous Stories Beyond Borders and some of that will be about uh, indigenous artists and others diplomats, soldiers, entrepreneurs who have achieved notoriety and success beyond Canada's shores, and uh, we may draw from some Hess items for that. Think of Cape Dorset prints, be a very, very good example. Then we also have a, a project we're looking at. Uh, we haven't done a major uh, Inuit art exib- exhibit in a few years. We're looking at doing another one of those. The Hess collection definitely figures into that. Uh, and thirdly, we're looking at a joint project with some of the other institutions which were beneficiaries of the Hess estate uh, that would be somewhat more about uh, Marmy's role as a collector mm. and a preserver and a, and, a, and a partisan and supporter of indigenous art. And that one, it, it, we were not at the point yet where we know what it's going to look like, but that project we think may be slightly more biographical. And the other uh, institutions that uh, you know we've been speaking to, all of whom are, are proud recipients of her material, include the uh, University of Lethbridge Art Gallery, um, the University of Calgary Archives, the Calgary Stampede, uh, and other great institutions, most of them in, in Western Canada, and of course ourselves. Um, now, looking at some of these pieces, and, and this is more of a general question because I don't know enough about this stuff, but when you have pieces that are that are made of bone or antler or these kind of things, how how delicate are they over time? What, what kind of, um, how do they have to be, 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 be uh, cared for? 
Um, okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna make every conservator who may be listening to this broadcast angry in my <laughs> in my answer based on plug ignorance, David. The, the most of those things the, most of those things are, are relatively robust and, and relatively stable, mm-hmm. and provided they're kept in uh, in cool environments, not right. touched often, and, and they're carefully moved, they'll be they'll be relatively robust. The harder ones are uh, b- broadly speaking uh, things that are of uh, that are textile or paper, mm-hmm. and uh, those. Are, are relatively fragile, and uh, things like uh, lighting conditions, for example, and humidity matter a great deal to those. Mm. And so, one of the challenges of um, one of the challenges of exhibiting paper, think of uh, prints or drawings or uh, things on on silk or anything like that, is their exposure to uh, to very high sensitivity to exposure to light and temperature. Mm. Other things, particularly stone. Um, or argillite or other things like that, they are far more robust. Now, they have challenges as well. Paper is easy to ship. Rocks, not so much. <laughs> right. And so, so you know, another one of my grandmothers saying was, "It's as broad as it is long." <laughs> and so, uh, you can have great flexibility in doing uh, exhibitry with works of paper uh, or on paper or in other textiles, but they need to be rotated often. And so, if you owned a museum and you wished to borrow from us and you wanted, let's say, uh, drawings and prints, uh, chances are we would want to rotate those every three months or less. Mm. Uh, if you borrowed uh, an exhibit of uh, sculpture or bone or other things, chances are we could leave it with you for quite some time, but it would impose upon you different kinds of display criteria. Right. And, and also, frankly speaking, different kinds of security criteria. Do you want somebody reaching out and touching a piece of, uh, of antler or you know, being within reaching distance? You can frame and glass, and glass or glaze a print, and you can have someone 12 inches from it. You probably shouldn't have somebody 12 inches from, um, from a piece of uh, a bone or a piece of argillite. Right. Well, Dean, we have to take a break uh, here uh, at the moment, and we will be right back. We're speaking with Dean Oliver, the uh, Senior Director of Research and uh, the Chief Curator curator rather, at the Canadian Museum of History. We'll be right back on the program after this. We are back, and you are listening to Moment of Truth on Element FM. I'm your host, David Moses. We are broadcasting in Toronto at 106.5 FM and in Ottawa at 95.7 and around the globe on the Radio Canada app. Our guest this morning is Dean Oliver. He is the uh, Senior Director of Research and the Chief Curator at the Museum, the Canadian Museum of History. And, Dean, just before the break, we were, we were talking about preserving things. My next question is, you know, I think uh, I've been hearing a lot lately about uh, uh, pe- either people downsizing or, or uh, uh, getting rid of stuff. You know, we collect junk, we get rid of stuff. But in your case... Uh, you you continually collect things, and and to me, when I think of that, that means you need to continually have more space and more room and more uh, more areas to hold these things. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the, I'll send you a bill for what I think I need for a collection storage day for the next uh, hundred years. Yes, we do. We do. We're, we're constantly collecting, and um, what one sees in in our museum or any museum really uh, is normally uh, a very very small percentage of what we what we actually have in the vaults and what we maintain. Um, 
ranging mostly between about 1% and maybe at max 3 or 4% of really? what's actually there. Wow. It's a very, it, it is uh, the tip of the proverbial iceberg yeah. uh, by a very, very long margin. But there are, of course, collecting criteria that sometimes, uh, and they change over time. Um, we are very interested in, at the moment, for example, in filling gaps in the contemporary Indigenous art collection. We've been doing a fair bit of that, targeted, of course. We recently did uh, a major permanent gallery uh, fix, uh, restoration, rather called Canadian History Hall, and that includes thousands of items. But as we curated it, we realized we were a little weaker in latter 20th century material than we were in uh, early 20th century material and before. And so we've been uh, quite strategically trying to fill some of those gaps. And then there's also, uh, from time to time, uh, deaccessions from the museum. We do those uh, quite sparingly and only as needed. Uh, we Perhaps we acquired something that we didn't know very much about, but we felt we needed. And then we find something else that we know a lot about. And the one that we had before we uh, we deaccession and periodically we comb through areas of the collections to try to find some some extra space but space is always a consideration and you uh, you uh, we aided i have to say by things like uh, technology and collapsible storage etc or we're going to put stuff in your garage <laughs> we're going to come down to your house and, and fill it with canoes <laughs> Yeah, uh, right. Now, occasionally, sometimes you you do have requests also for repatriation of things. We do. Yeah, it's a it's a, a substantial and quite uh, important part of the business. Uh, there are certain categories of things that are immediately and uh, and always uh, being discussed as subjects or eligible for repatriation. The most obvious ones, of course, are ancestral remains, uh, grave goods, ceremonial objects. Um, but there are other categories of uh, repatriations as well. Uh, we kind of actively look through the old collections records and files to make sure that anything that we have was acquired ethically, legally, legitimately. Uh, and if there's if there are doubts or issues about those, we would go back to uh, those we think are owners or host communities and open discussions about them. There are also, uh, from time to time, uh, items of, uh, of uh, family, clan, or community nature that fall outside these kind of uh, ready categories. Um, think, for example, of um, copyright ownership of symbology or iconography. Mm. Someone may come and say, this you know, really was the, the blanket of my family mm. and, and not what you think you have identified it as. And so we do that all the time, uh, and uh, very rarely, but but sometimes we open discussions about international uh, repatriation as well. If uh, for some reason material has wound up in our museum from some other uh, geopolitical domain, let's say Australia or New Zealand, we would certainly discuss with authorities what what the proper proper terms and conditions of, of that material should be. Well, that's an interesting point because I was thinking of that because I've heard of of some. Uh uh, people trying to repatriate from other countries. Is there is there some kind of a universal uh, approach to this, or or how does it is it country by country? How does that work? Um, there there isn't a, a universal approach uh, short of the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, mm. uh, which is probably as as, as close uh, as we have. Um, that of course was endorsed by the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And uh, it is a, a it's, it isn't law, but it is certainly an international guidance about how to proceed. Uh, and in the end, it, um, the summary version is that it advises or cautions uh, 
uh, holding institutions to consider, in fact, to privilege uh, Indigenous uh, ownership, rights, and consultation in or around uh, any items in your possessions. And so we're very cognizant of that, but even more so of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. But far more often, um, discussions of this nature are guided by the, the terms and conditions uh, pertaining to the collections in individual institutions. Mm. There are some countries, the United States is, is one of them that does have uh, kind of international legislation on this, but, but many don't. And so uh, part of the work of museology really is to make sure that you are aware of what other inst- the terms under which other institutions hold collections similar to your own and the ways in which you contact and deal with those institutions when either you want something from them or you suspect they want something from you. Now, if there was a piece in, in, a, in a family or, or from another country that, that someone came forward, do you guys step in to help with that? Or is that, are those people on their own to do this? Or how, does that, how would that work? I'm just curious. Um, we have no um, international mandate uh, to search out and return uh, objects that other communities, people, provinces, etc., uh, may feel they want. Uh, but we do have the um, the knowledge and experience sometimes to assist people in that. Nevertheless, mm. um, just because there isn't a piece of legislation that enables us to do this, we can certainly talk to p- people anyone really who is looking for assistance and advice. Sometimes um, the United States is a very good example, really. Um, the, the perception may be um, that uh, you know things in holdings in the United States are inaccessible to people in Canada or to other countries. The, the truth is really quite the opposite. American authorities, including major institutions like the Smithsonian, are quite open to these kinds of things. And uh, we are sometimes often, sometimes we're often able to put um, people looking for th- pe- people looking for objects or ancestors or even just information in touch with the right people either here uh, or abroad and, and we're to be honest we're, we're quite happy to do it mm. now um, we kind of touched on this a little bit to some degree but I'm just wondering uh, the ways in which the indigenous experience is reflected in the museum and in its galleries and collections uh, th- thank you for the question. Um, we're, uh, w- we have always been proud of this, I have to say. The opening of this building was, um, you know, with the, the building itself was designed by an indigenous architect. It's principal public space. In fact, probably the best known public space in Canada is the Grand Hall, which is this wonderful uh, reflection of aesthetic and symbolism, including in particular Northwest Coast uh, material. Then it had uh, around it, uh, on the main floor of the museum, something called First Peoples Hall, Mm. which is a kind of a time walk through the uh, ethnocultural history of all of Canada's First Peoples. But we're even, if possible, a little prouder of it now. In the gallery I mentioned earlier, Earlier, Canadian History Hall, uh, which we opened in the summer of 2017, uh, we deliberately wove into it uh, not only the, the, the meta narrative of uh, colonial Canada, but more importantly, the meta narrative of Indigenous Canada uh, in one um, uh, holistic piece. So it's divided over three galleries, 
but it no longer begins as our previous gallery did with essentially the arrival of the Vikings. Uh, it is from time immemorial to the day before yesterday, and there is no uh, hiving off or separation of indigenous story from anybody else's story. Um, you meet and are immersed in indigenous stories very early in that gallery, and then they're woven throughout the fabric of the uh, of the exhibits from start to finish. And so we're really quite proud of that. Uh, we work with a great number of advisors, including a standing indigenous advisory committee, which a format that we're also using right now for indigenous strategies beyond borders. And our, our hope, uh, more than a hope, I think our belief is that we've done justice uh, to a narrative of, of all Canadians in which very few people can reasonably find them, from which rather very few can find themselves excluded. But job one for us was to make sure that the indigenous story didn't just remain in these other wonderful places, Grand Hall and the First People's Hall mm. and other sites in the building, but they became part of a joint narrative of, uh, of all of us. Mm. Now, I know that, that you can never please everyone all the time. Um, <laughs> I think that was a P.T. Barnum quote, I believe. <laughs> so I'm just wondering, as, as wonderful as it is, um, what, are, what are some of the things you're hearing uh, both, both uh, on the positive and, and otherwise uh, it, when people enter this and, and go through this building? Oh, um, in all honesty, uh, very little negative feedback, Mm, uh, but to the extent that there has been negative feedback, uh, I would say that um, the old gallery that we closed, the one that we replaced uh, replaced this with, uh, was called Canada Hall, and it was a gallery that was based very closely on three-dimensional reproductions of scenes in Canadian history. Mm. And so it had little by way of meta-narrative, but it had a lot by way of visual interest and beautiful spaces, really quite uh, telegenic, uh, you know, photograph-friendly spaces. Mm. And much of the negative commentary that I have received has been about that. Mm. People love the old space, and they fear change. And when the old space, which is beautiful and well-liked, was gone, people have missed it. And I think that's perfectly fair, reasonable, expected criticism. Uh, there are, of course, always, uh, you're quite right, not everybody's happy all the time. There are stories that people wish uh, that we had emphasized more, uh, some where they think we have emphasized uh, too much. And so if you are a fan of um, Saskatchewan or Newfoundland history, for example, and you find a large section on the history of northern Canada or of Quebec, uh, you it may be slightly predictable that you would say you need more Saskatchewan or my hometown, mm. and that's perfectly reasonable and predictable. But those, in all honesty, those are in a very, very small minority. Uh, the feedback we received both uh, personally in terms of you know personal visitors to the space, walking through, liking it, commenting it, uh, talking to guides, has been wonderful. Likewise, the commentary from fellow professionals, whether museologists or uh, in the various disciplines that are represented, archaeology, ethnology, history, cultural studies, indigenous studies, those have been very positive, including the responses of the, um, the advisors that we had. We had a team of uh, women's history advisors, indigenous advisors, general historians. And, and lastly, I would say, though this is, uh, one doesn't do a gallery like this with the following in mind, the response of websites like Travel Advisor and Travelocity and other places in which people plan their, uh, you know, their tourism and their visits and their uh, kind of educational cultural experiences has also been very, very good. And so uh, I think by any reasonable and objective standard, the, the responses to these places, but in particular Canadian History Hall, has been really 
really wonderful, and it's very gratifying to the many, many colleagues here who worked on it, and also, I hope, to the many personal stories that are reflected in it. Mm. You know, um, as you were talking there, and, and you've touched on this to some degree, but I, I guess museums are, are not uh, unlike, uh, as, you, as you just mentioned, people are looking for experiences. They're looking for, you know, I'm guessing museums are, are no different. People want to not just walk through and see. They want, to, they want an experience when they go through there. And that's, I think, what you're talking about in terms of what you've created with this. It's very true. Uh, there has to be some kind of uh, of a connection. I mean, the the etymology. Uh, this is a subject for another hour on your program. But but the the etymology of of museums and other cultural institutions is that quite often they were places where, and this goes back really to their origin, where um, uh, elite classes, uh, the wealthy, um, the leaders of the military, uh, the you know political leadership of a country, um, lectured to people, a kind of a, a monologue about the things in which the things that visitors should think are important. And the history of museology now over half a century and more has been kind of the reverse, to try to allow people to find things that are important to them in their own lives. And that means things like place, family, community, um, experiences that we would share. And so there is uh, perhaps a Syrian immigration story. More recently, there's you know an Irish immigration story. There's the story of, uh, of immigrants thousands of years ago crossing a, a river or a lake. But what do those stories have in common? They have in common things like fear, um, hunger, love, absence, longing, and those are the kinds of things now strategically in place in, in galleries and where, they, where personal stories and experiences are allowed to speak tend to matter far more to the average visitor because if I just tell you the history of Assyria, if you're not interested in Assyria, you're probably uninterested. But if I tell you something about how Assyrians lived and how their lives may reflect your own, I've made a connection. Hmm. You don't have to know anybody who lived in ancient Assyria, but you may be interested in how their life unfolded, their their loves and longings. And those are the kinds of things that we try to fold into this gallery, far less about uh, the, the shin bone, leg bone, knee bone chronology of the country than about the way in which the history of the country was lived by those who experienced it. Hmm. On the, along the same line, when, when people come from uh, other countries to visit and see the museum, that are not maybe necessarily that familiar with with Canada's history or its indigenous people. What are you What are you seeing? Is there anything that's that jumps out at you from visitors that uh, you weren't expecting to to hear? Because I, I I think that you know we're we're here. We 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 experience this. We go to see it. We we perceive it from our own our own um, uh, Canadian right. perspective. You might say. So, what kind of things are you hearing from outsiders? Uh, that's a very good question. Uh, it, I would say it's quite diverse, but there are some uh, commonalities, and it depends a little bit on the place from from whence you come. Uh, I, I think it would be true, though I, I've never seen this statistically demonstrated, I think it would be true that if anything is known about Canada, uh, it would probably be the fact that it's uh, it's big and uh, geographically diverse and uh, usually quite beautiful, though this is often by people who never spent a winter here. <laughs> and the other thing that people tend to know uh, is that it is rich in indigenous history. Mm. And so um, there there is both a series of um, you know surprise encounters and I suppose familiar 
encounters by people when they when they come here. They want to see uh, topography, geography, you know, Lake Louise, the polar bears in the north, um, you know, the, uh, the the gold and beautiful plains of the, the Canadian West. They want to see all that, and re- they react to it, and they probably know something about it. But they're also, I think, more than anything, keenly interested in indigenous history. This can be both a blessing and a curse, uh, because much of what, uh, I'll take only Europeans as an example, tend to know is a very distilled version of what they think indigeneity looks like mm. in Canada. And so it has something to, it's something to do, this is not meant to be critical of um, of European visitors in, in any way, but it, it, it's something very close to an archetype that would have been familiar with late 19th century boosters of the Buffalo Bill, uh, mm. you know, the Wild West show and mm. Buffalo Bill Cody and so on. So they have this sense of uh, fringe jackets and headdresses and so on. And the diversity and depth and um, beauty, I think, of the indigenous experience is almost always a surprise. Mm. Uh, but they love it. If mm. we want to send a, an exhibit, uh, in particular to Europe, um, we have a far easier time, generally speaking, if it's an exhibit on indigenous experience, indigenous objects, than if it is a uh, Southern Alberta political history. Mm. Uh, it, the indigenous story has universal interest, mm. and and they gravitate to that in the galleries. Mm. Fascinating. Now, we're going to, have to take a short break uh, momentarily, but I'm just wondering, is there, do, you, do you want to talk about your own career with the museum quickly and, and tell us something about that? Oh, thank you. Thank you. I, I won't say very much. We talked off the outset about um, <laughs> yeah. about moving from the War Museum mm-hmm. to over to over here. Uh, other than to say that, uh, you know, the learning curve in content for me, I've been here six years now, mm-hmm. has been uh, absolutely steep and glorious. And uh, I arrived at the museum at a time when many of our um, more senior curators and staff were retiring. They mm-hmm. had built this building in the late 80s. And so uh, in addition to being challenged uh, just in terms of curiosity by the job, I've also had the, the great pleasure of uh, hiring about 20 new staff. And so, um, you know, when uh, when I slip loose from this uh, mortal coil, uh, I leave the place in very, very good hands with, uh, you know, 40 people now, but 20 of whom I will have hired who are, you know, younger, better, faster, and stronger than me. And uh, no no manager could, uh, could wish for something better than that. <laughs> Sounds great. Uh, Dean, we do have to take a break, and we're also going to hand it off to your uh, your co-worker there, Gaili Moulin, I believe that's her. Gaël Moulin. Gaël Moulin. And uh, she's the program coordinator there. We're going to speak with her, but we're going to take this break and come back and speak with uh, Gaël right after this. Thanks for joining us, Dean. You're very welcome. We are back on Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses, and this is Element FM broadcasting to Toronto and Ottawa. And Toronto at 106.5 FM in Ottawa, 95.7. And we are continuing on with our guests from the Canadian Museum of History in Gatineau, Quebec. And uh, we have on the line now the program coordinator of the museum. And, uh, to, and is it Gaël Gailly? Gael. Gael. Gael Moulin. And thank you so much for joining us. We very much appreciate you uh, taking the time to uh, come and speak with us today. Thank you. Um, I would like to introduce myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I just said that uh, in my language, the Inu language, uh, that my name is Gael Molin, and I'm really happy to be here today to discuss more about the RBC Indigenous Internship Program. 
Oh, merci beaucoup. That was wonderful. I have a big grin on my face as you were uh, announcing and saying your and and introducing yourself in your own language. That's wonderful, and uh, very much appreciate you doing that. Thank you. <laughs> so, Gail, um, yes, let's talk about some of these programs that you have going on. I had a look at some of the stuff that you're into, and it looks very interesting. Mm-hmm, yes, this is very interesting, and it's uh, the RBC Indigenous Internship Program. It's a unique program in Canada, and we offer it here at the Canadian Museum of History. This year, we celebrate its 26th year, wow. and it's a program uh, for the uh, First Nation, Métis, and Inuit. Oh, and and so you bring in you bring in students. Is that what? Yes, we have. Do they have to be? Uh, are they are they students at school? Can they be? Uh, can can it be someone with just a general interest in this? How does it? How do you yes. select? Yes, uh, we we choose on the their interest. Mm-hmm. So if they, um, it's a full full time program. So it's mm-hmm. thirties, uh, like it's a full uh, full time week. So if a student is at school, maybe it could be problematic for mm-hmm. for this person. Mm-hmm. But it's for any p- people that have any interest in the museum field. There's no ages. Okay, and it, and it runs for how long? How long of a program is it? It's an eight-month program starting in September with two weeks of break and ending in April. And what, what does someone expect to, to get out of this? What do they, when they leave the program, uh, it sounds fascinating, but what, <laughs> what would they be exposed to and what would they be doing? And what would, when they finish, what do they come out with at the end? The goal of the program is um, to expand to have a, a technical and professional um, work experience in a museum field. So the intern, when they arrive, they have a three weeks of uh, orientation to get used to the museum, and then they're placed in different placements. So we have six placements um, for f- from f- five, uh, four, sorry, to six weeks, um, four to five weeks. So we they, they can have... Um, Research, collection, conservation, exhibition, public programming, corporate, cooperative affair, museum, and development services. So they can. It's based on their interests, but we we also have um, some that are mandatory, like the research, the collection, conservation. Hmm. And and you know, I, I sounds great. I I'd love to do this if I had the time. <laughs> <laughs> so this is. Did you say it's the it's in its twenty sixth year? Yes. 26 years this year. Wow. It was uh, implemented in 1993. Wow, and how has it grown or changed over those years? Uh, it has grown uh, re- really, so it's, kind, it's a unique program in Canada. Mm. Uh, we, over the years, we have uh, over 124 uh, interns that have uh, came to the museum to do this internship, and over 40 uh, nation and community across Canada. Wow. That that's whew, that's that's great. So if I were going to take this program and I'm I, I I select one area after did you say four or five weeks to to sort of immerse myself into? Yes. So we have uh, up to six placements throughout the year. So mm-hmm. starting from September till April, and we have uh, some that are mandatory, like the research, the community-based research, also, and also either collection and conservation, and other is based on your interests. And what, what, when, I, when I finish this program, what can mm-hmm. I do with it? Where does it allow me to go further? How does it help me? Uh, a lot of uh, 
when the the internship is uh, it's over, we we offer a certification from the museum, and a lot of uh, interns in the past have either pursued pursued their studies in uh, in the museum field or have returned to the community to work in a cultural center of if they have a museum. Mm. So it's really to uh, to have uh, to offer an experience, and if the person is interested to pursue after in. Um, you know, in the museum field, they, they can pursue their studies. And we have a lot of interns that uh, are now uh, role models uh, in their community, working in cultural centers and museums, but also that uh, pers- pursue their studies in a variety of uh, of subjects. Yeah, it it sounds like it's... So is this something that would be recognized by a university, for instance, if, you want, if someone were to take that and go further? Uh, it's not accredited yet, but we're working on it. Okay. So uh, it would be it's mostly uh, a certificate of uh, that you completed the program. Mm. Now I noticed you didn't say anything about repatriation in there with uh, with if, with anything uh, that you're working on. I only say that because when I was talking with if Dean earlier, um, mm-hmm. someone that works in the department, John Moses, is actually a relative of yeah. mine, and I didn't oh, yeah. I, I I didn't know that until I went there years ago when I was working uh, mm-hmm. for APTN. But uh, anyway, moving on. Um, if I wanted to participate, or if there's someone out there that's listening, go, hey, this sounds really cool. I'd like to get mm-hmm. involved. What would they need to do? Uh, all we ask is to have um, is for the uh, the person that is interested to send a resume to reference letter and just a short um, short letter that explain uh, what it, what what is their interest and if they have work in cultural uh, or museum related. Hmm. The uh, deadline is the March 31st this oh, year. Okay, so there's a deadline of March 31st for you to get that information in there. Two references, a letter of interest, and, mm-hmm. and why you want to participate. Um, yes. Now, what about when they're there? If they're coming from great distances, uh, yes. is, is this is this something that is uh, that they have to find their own funding for? How does that work? Uh, so we cover the trans- the transportation to mm-hmm. and uh, from their uh, their community. Yeah. So we we uh, we pay for the transportation. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also have um, a small step bed uh, okay. that we That's offer throughout the year. So it's um it's a uh, it's a uh, salary based on the criteria of the Ontario and Quebec. So it's a full thirty seven point five hours a week. So mm-hmm. they receive. This and then when they once they return, they they're gonna have their transportation. But we we encourage um, people that are interested to look out for um, from the Ben Council, for example, if they have any um, chance to have any help with the finance. Mm. Well, that's good to know. And and how long have you been the program coordinator there? I just started in uh, November. You just started in November. <laughs> well, congratulations. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> now, have you been uh, have you been working at the museum prior to that in another area? Yes, I was uh, a hostess at the museum uh-huh. in 2013, uh, and my last uh, contract finished in 2018. So I was um, a hostess on and off for five years. Mm. Um, I say on and off because in the summer I used to go back in my community, Iguanchi, mm. uh, to work in uh, the cultural center. Yeah, and that's in uh, is that northern Quebec? Yes, it's uh, it's East Quebec, North Shore of Quebec. Okay, you know, it's interesting. Uh, we've had a couple of people on the uh, on the program here from uh, Northern Quebec, and mm-hmm. I just went to uh, look up your community to see where it was. I couldn't find it, but um, <laughs> but uh, when I was looking at it, I, and I had a look at at Quebec once again, uh, mm-hmm. 
it, for some unknown reason, this hadn't dawned on me. The size of Quebec and how far north it goes, <laughs> it really goes far up there. I mean, it, it, you're, you're, you can really get up. It's, it's north. Yes, it's really far, and I think it's about 14 to 15 hours from uh, Ottawa to go back uh, where I'm from, so I don't, uh, it's, uh, it's unfortunate, so I cannot go often as much as I would like. Yeah, but you can, you can drive there, yes? You can get there by road. Yes, we can drive. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what else can you tell us? You, were, uh, you want to tell us about this, uh, the Indigenous uh, Year of, of uh, or the, rather the International Year of Indigenous Languages. I understand you were uh, in Paris for the launch of this official. Yes, I was uh, in Paris uh, for the official uh, official launch of the uh, Indigenous Year of uh, the in- International Year of Indigenous Languages mm. with uh, three other uh, Indigenous from Quebec. So it was a project with uh, Logique, which is uh, Les Offices Jeunesse Francophone, mm. and with uh, also um, Réseau Jeunesse, which is a First Nation uh, youth group in Quebec. Mm. And we got selected to go uh, over to Paris to uh, attend the uh, the official launch. It was a really great experience, and we had the chance to attend a steering committee the next day with the um, the steering committee of the Indigenous uh, Years, uh, like members. So what was that like? What was uh, Tell us something about that. It was really interesting. It was really nice to see a lot of uh, Indigenous uh, people from across the world mm. because uh, there was a lot, of, a lot of Indigenous people from South uh, America, from Africa, from uh, um, also Russia. There was a lot of people from uh, either, and it was a lot of people from BC too, mm. from uh, indigenous from BC, mm. uh, Asia. So it was really fun to see and interesting to see that we all have the same um, desire to keep our indigenous languages. And um, so it was, uh, I was really, I felt blessed to be a, a part of this uh, mm. international year launch. Now, what did you take away from it, other than the fact that it was being recognized? What What did you see there? Was there anything that surprised you from from being there and this this uh, the the indigenous languages being officially launched? What 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 did you see there that that maybe you weren't expecting? Uh, I wasn't expecting that. Uh, a lot of people that spoke uh, on the the 29th of January, there was a lot of indigenous people from, you know, like I said, ac- across the world. Mm-hmm. And what surprises me was that we all have the same desire to keep our language, but also we have the same difficulties also to, uh, you know, to... to uh, uh, to, to preserve to it, to preserve it, and keep yeah, it, to yeah. preserve it mm. and to keep it alive. So I was really surprised because I thought maybe it was not only in Canada, I know, but mm. I thought that it wasn't like um, it was only for us mm. in Canada. But I was surprised to see that other people from India, Africa, Asia too have the same um, difficulty, and especially uh, with the youth. So it's kind of how we're gonna preserve the language and mm. how we're gonna pass it through the next generation. Was there anything said there at this launch about helping to do that in terms of preserving languages, indigenous languages? Um, there was a lot of... Uh, when I was on the steering committee, mm. the members uh, said that the you know the new ways of to interest people to languages was the social media. Mm. So they were, were planning they were planning on using a lot of social media and um, a lot of events. I think regarding to sense to centers. To um, offered to people about the uh, the indigenous languages mm-hmm. for the whole year of 2019. And uh, 
this is just a general question. How uh, how do you enjoy working at the museum? What uh, what encourages you about working in an environment like this? I've always had the I've always had an interest in uh, in object, mm-hmm. and when I first came in uh, in Gatineau, I I didn't know any like I didn't know anything. I was uh, I was like alone. So mm-hmm. I, I my mom she she told me oh. I, you should go look, Gail. There's a, a, a nice museum there that have a, a lot of indigenous objects. So I went there with uh, one of my friends that I've, uh, one of my friends, and then I, I looked to the website and I saw that there was uh, job offers. So I immediately applied to uh, to be a notice, and I, I felt so so happy to be working here because um, in Gatineau there's there's not a lot of uh, indigenous mm. places. Uh, so there's not a lot of uh, friendship center except if you go mm-hmm. to Ottawa. Mm-hmm. So when I was uh, working on the Grand Hall and the First People Hall, I used to walk there and feel comfortable and mm-hmm. feel happy to have all these objects surrounding me. <laughs> so I was uh, I was really happy when I, I was working as an hostess here. So you know when I when you say that to me, I'm I'm wondering. You say it's nice to see, but did you feel closer to your culture when you were walking around seeing some of these objects? Uh, yes, I felt I felt uh, like the uh, you know all, uh, in my culture we have uh, something called animism, and I you know I felt like the object I don't know like were kind of give me giving me hope and <laughs> giving me like strength to to continue because I was like I said I was like alone mm. in alone in Gatineau, a, a city that I didn't know before moving moving to here, so mm. I, I felt really. Uh, I felt closer, and there, there was a few videos that played in the First People Hall, and it was um, Cree. Mm. It was Cree language, and just listening to that and understanding what they were saying, I mm. felt really, felt really good. Wow, that's that's interesting. Now, uh, did you perhaps come across anything that came from your community, or perhaps a relative that you didn't know uh, was artistic at all? Uh, not in the uh, exhibition, but in the the collection, mm. uh, I have a traditional tent that my grandparents made, mm. and that was given in '92, uh, the year I was born. So I was really surprised, and so I, I I asked if I could see it unfolded. It's a traditional tent, and it's um, so I have this, and I have a lot of objects that I, my godfather uh, made. So I was um. I'm really happy that uh, there's a lot of objects from my community. Very interesting. Wow. Uh, Gail, thank you. Merci beaucoup so much for joining us today on the program. Uh, we're really uh-huh. glad that the both of you were able to share uh, some of this with us today and, uh, and wish you all the best in your, in your, new, uh, your new job as the program thank coordinator. You, and uh, may you inspire many uh, youth, Indigenous youth, to go on and, and work in this field. And uh, that's going to have to, we'll have to leave it at, at that for now. But uh, I want to say uh, again, Nyawa Miigwech and Awonishi, and merci beaucoup for joining us today and on Moment Thanks. of Truth. Thank you very much. Okay, we'll see you later. And this is Moment of Truth. I'm David Moses. And uh, that was uh, Gil uh, Moulin, and she's the program coordinator, I hope I've said that correctly, uh, at the Canadian Museum of History in Gatineau, Quebec. And earlier we spoke with Dean Oliver. And he is the Senior Director of Research and the Chief Curator at the Museum. Fascinating stuff. We looked forward to more fascinating things here on Moment of Truth. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again next time.